Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode cloud servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the simplest cloud platform for developers and teams with products like Droplets, Spaces, Kubernetes, Load Balancers, Block Storage, and pre-built one-click apps. You can deploy, manage, and scale cloud applications faster and more efficiently on DigitalOcean. Whether you're running one virtual machine or 10,000, DigitalOcean makes managing your infrastructure way too easy. Get started for free with a $100 credit. Head to do.co slash changelog. Again, do.co slash changelog. Welcome to GoTime, a podcast featuring a diverse panel and special guests discussing cloud infrastructure, distributed systems, microservices, Kubernetes, Docker, oh, and also Go. We record live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Eastern, noon Pacific. Join the community of Slack with us in real time during the show in the GoTime FM channel and go for Slack. Follow us on Twitter. We're at GoTime FM. Listen live at changelaw.com slash live or subscribe at changelaw.com slash GoTime. And now on to the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to GoTime. I'm Matt Raya. Today, we're talking about testing. And I'm joined by some great thinkers and tinkerers from around the Go community. Uh, I'm joined by Johnny Borsico, Yana Bidogan, and the one and only John Calhoun. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 Hey, Matt. How are we feeling today? Feeling good. No complaints. Good. <laughs> Well, if you do have complaints, don't bring them to me because I can't help, <laughs> especially if it's anything medical. Uh, okay, so yeah, testing is such an important subject, I think. So it's great that we get to do a show on it. And I notice whenever I talk about testing, it always creates a lot of debate. And I always wonder why that is. You, you know, you'll hear some people say, you know, TDD is dead uh, and other people advocating for it and some very diverse opinions. Um, and I think that says something about testing, which hopefully we can uncover today. Uh, but perhaps it's worth kicking off with talking a bit, a bit about the things we like about testing and, and the positivity around testing, because there's definitely lots of negativity around it too. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what kind of, first of all, let's start off, we, let's assume that, that we, we are joined by some people that are just getting into Go, haven't done much testing before. So what's the point in testing? What, what do we feel like? Why do we do it? And what do we want to get from it? It's a way to understand myself, I think, right? <laughs> Especially in the long Ooh. term and a way to like express what my code is supposed to do. It's kind of like a summary. You just explain what it's supposed to do. And you have this like repeatable way of checking if it's actually doing. Yeah, so essentially, it, yeah, so you just want it to describe in some form other than the code itself you want it to you want to describe what promises you're making 
It's sort of actually, it's it's a code that explains itself, right? Like, I mean, uh, when you said it's not a coding way, I, I just kind of like assume that you are talking more about like some specs or like some like, hey, this is what it, sh- you know, the the project should behave like, more of like a, you know, specification. But code itself is a spec, uh, sorry, testing is a spec itself, but it's code as well. Yes, it's code. So, yeah, so just very practically then in go if you write a function let's say and it's just again it's going to be a greeter function it's going to take in a name and it's going to say hello to that name and return that as a string you could write a test which passes in some names and uh, makes sure that what gets returned is what was expected um, so that's a set i mean that's essentially a unit test and then what that gives you is you can look at the test code and you can just sort of see at a glance what the what promises are being made or how what your functions meant to do and of course one of the goals i think of good testing and good practices is to have those tests continuously run such that you know that they are you can at least assume that they all pass Um, and that way we get a good feel it's a great way if you're looking at a new package to to get a sense of how you should use that package you can go and poke around in the test code yeah totally so one of the uh, to sort of piggyback on what uh, Yana has just mentioned, like for me, the tests sort of take on a different meaning um, as the project goes on, as the project goes, right? In the beginning, I'm, I'm trying to think through um, the problem I'm trying to solve, and I'm basically saying, okay, let me establish some some specs around what I expect it to do. But over time, as the project sort of um, lives on and, and features get added or removed or whatnot, they become more of a, a sort of a guardrail, right? They become more of a sort of a um, um, letting me or confirming, right, that the yeah. the changes I've been making, right, the things that I assume are still true have remained true, right, throughout the sort of evolution of, of the software. So they take on a slightly different meaning, I think, as the project evolves. I think it's also, like, related to that, I think it's true that tests give you a good chance to clarify on things. Like, a, a good example is when I play board games, my friends always joke that I'm the person who thinks up the weird edge case and wonders if there's any, like, clarification in the rules for it. But, like, test cases are a great way of saying like if you give me this weird input this is exactly what you're going to get back and this is i think why coverage is really important because um coverage kind of also like you basically declare what you expect by covering those cases and sometimes i'm seeing people just going over like test cases and assuming that like maybe this package or this function is not supposed to you know act like this way because it's not you know represented in the tests Uh, so it's important why i think one of the reasons why coverage is so important yeah and i think you know it's easy to get a little bit obsessed with coverage too i've seen people i've met people who say you know they have they're very proud of it they have 100 percent code coverage and essentially in Go projects, that means they've tested in some way all the points at which their code could error, for example. Yeah. They've, they have test coverage for that. So I would say that like for dynamically typed languages, 100% is definitely required. That is the base minimal. <laughs> 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 right. Uh, but yeah, 100% doesn't necessarily mean, you know, it's good coverage or I mean, it's necessarily important. I think it's important to recognize what coverage actually means, though. Like Matt said, if you're just saying that you cover all of the code, is that really 100% coverage? Because, I mean, you didn't try every integer input. You didn't try, like, you know, every string input. So, like, you can have coverage in the sense that it touches all of your code, but that's nowhere near actually 
having covered, you know, 100% coverage. Yeah. Uh, does this mean also like, you know, you need some fuzzing or like mm -hmm. uh, you need to just force it to with like different inputs and so on with all the possibilities. You need to be a little bit smarter. Maybe you cannot really manually, you know, generate all those test cases, right? Yeah. Because I mean, for me, at least, I would rather work on a code base with 75% code coverage, but like that coverage is actually well thought out and it's good versus somebody who's like, hey, I've got 100% code coverage, but it's just the simple really basic inputs for everything. And it doesn't really actually test if things are going to work when, you know, crap hits the fan. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Happy path and, and everything else. All right. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, if you do have that hundred percent code coverage, aren't your tests going to be overfit really for the test code? I mean, essentially your real code, your program code becomes very brittle. Every change, every tweak of the implementation could break these tests you know, if because they've got coverage to that degree. So in that way, I think you can go too far with tests. I think a lot of people probably do. I definitely have in the past. And for me, it, it's about striking the balance between how much you need to do in order to, to have the benefits that testing brings you, uh, but, but no more. But isn't this a question about like compatibility also? Like in, if you give, gave, uh, you know, behavior, promises for example you may actually want to be able to cover those like tiny details so you don't change the behavior without like you know i mean you, you should be informed if your behavior is changing yeah and i suppose it, that's a good way of putting it it's about what promises you've made and this is where i think it's quite difficult to have these conversations in the general because I think this will change depending on the kind of thing you're building. If you're building a, a binary encoder, decoder, then the test coverage and everything's going to look very different to if you're building an email sending service or something. Do you think? Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, even if you're like, if you talk about like a website or something like that, technically to have 100% coverage, it feels like, okay, what happens if my hard drive fails? Like there's all these weird things that you might need to simulate, but you know, is that actually worth doing versus, you know, like you said, an encoder or something that's much smaller, you don't really have to think about all of that stuff as much. Yeah, I think like unit tests versus, you know, integration tests is a huge topic. And, you know, like it's so complicated to run some of these integration tests that uh, people would rather go to Canary and try to, you know, take a look in production because the environment and all the glue is really complicated. Yeah, so we should just spend a little bit of time just talking a bit about those those differences between, say, unit tests and integration tests and the other types of testing that there are. For sure, unit testing, I think, is the simplest one to understand um, because it's the simplest kind of test. You have some kind of function, usually. Uh, Dave Cheney did a talk at the recent Go meetup in London where he made the case that the unit actually should be the package. And actually, that's the, that's the boundary at which you should test. And uh, he made some quite interesting points about that. But essentially, whatever it is you're testing the unit, that's the unit test. It's the smallest piece. You write the test code. It runs that real code and checks the outputs. And they're unit tests. So could someone tell us about uh, what's an integration test then, if that's a unit test? I've heard different definitions of integration tests, right? So it's almost like whenever I personally start talking about it, I have to sort of give like a preamble, right? Okay, when I talk about integration tests within this project, this is what I'm talking about. But basically, the basic idea is that given a solution, given you know a piece of software that solves a particular problem, 
are the different components within that solution um, well integrated such that they can perform the, 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 the given, basically, they can solve the problem, right? Can they can the components work well together, right, mm-hmm. to to actually deliver the solution? So it, you can have just you know two components, a dozen components, hundreds of components, doesn't matter. Do all these pieces within your the bounds of your software or your solution, right? Without talking to external sort of uh, entities, can these things talk to each other? Now there are others who think, well, integration testing means you go outside the boundaries of of the immediate piece of software, of the immediate sort of um, repo or whatever, whatever the project is. Now, can it talk to say a, a, an external service like a database? Can it talk to other you know APIs? And it's almost like you, you kind of have to sort of qualify what you mean by integration testing. But at least I consider it as within the the project you're working on right now do all the pieces in it fit together well i think like one way like piggybacking on that a little bit that i've heard it described that i think it helps sometimes is if you think about it as like i'm testing this one package or component or whatever it is and like it's interacting with other things and you have to pretend that like i'm not going to be changing that code so i have to make sure that like what i have works correctly with those things yeah, and um, I think you run integration tests like after you know your unit tests because you want to make sure first the module itself is like you know running and the integration test is only handling if it can like work together with other modules, right? Yeah, like one of the examples I've always liked to give is you could write a unit test for like let's say you're connecting to a Stripe API, you could write a unit test for it and say like as long as they give me back this you know this response, my code works correctly. But you're never actually verifying that Stripe gives that response back. So if we assume that like the Stripe API, let's say assume you're allowed to talk to third-party services for your integration testing definition, the integration test might be the one that actually talks with Stripe and says, do I actually get the response back I expected? So like the two sort of have those two separate purposes that helps uh, clarify what they're trying to do. Integration tests are actually really interesting because... Well, they are classified as functional tests, like functional as in you're actually seeing if the system is behaving as you're expecting. Mm -hmm. But also it really relies on the reliability of those external services and like, you know, all these internal different modules. So it's kind of like somewhere, I think, in between like functional and non-functional testing, right? I think that's what makes it so hard is that every company, depending on what all they rely on, has such a very different understanding of what an integration test is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if you think about like a Google, when they release something that it's it's a very different scale than like if I were to take something and throw it up onto a you know a small Linode server or something, that's a very different experience than like somebody Google is going to release something. So like the integration testing is going to be vastly different. Yeah, I mean, even within like large companies, there are also different like approaches to these problems. And, you know, it really relies on, uh, depends on the project and the problem and so on. So it's really hard to, you know, give some common advice on this topic. Yeah, absolutely right. So this kind of touches on an interesting bit as well, which basically like when when I have when I know I'm I'm sort of uh, integrating with a, a third party solution, right? Basically, because you want to make sure that during your unit test, right, you're not necessarily hitting right those external entities and whether they be APIs or databases. Uh, and some people can argue for actually hitting those things, but outside of that, right? So I may I may then say, okay, well. 
I want to be able to do mocking and subbing and, and these kinds of things, right? So then there's a balance you kind of have to strike there because I've been bitten a few times by basically over mocking or over stubbing. And then I go find out, right, during, you know, thankfully sometimes during the integration testing where I'm talking to those services. Uh, but worst case scenario, I find out at runtime when the application is in staging or production that a particular endpoint that I was assuming some responses were coming back, you know, in my stubbing and mocking, that is, that's actually not the case. So if something has changed in the hood or whatever the case may be, I go find out too late in the process. So there's a balance that you're trying to strike there. Um, but you know, a lot of people sort of advocate for mocking and subbing. I've honestly, I've, I've started to do less and less of them in favor of actually, um, like Yana was saying, basically putting, putting, basically doing a canary deploy and saying, okay, does this thing behave right with actual live traffic? Does it behave the way uh, it's it's supposed to behave, right? So basically trying to create less sort of fakery around the thing I'm building and actually feeding it live traffic and seeing how it behaves. That's a way more a sort of an accurate representation of how your software is going to behave than than all the mocking you're going to do around it. I know that Monzo do that. There's a bank in London called Monzo, and they're written in Go. And I know that they do that. They have, I assume, test cards and automated tests can execute on the live system and essentially simulating people really using their cards and transferring money and, I suppose, doing all the features that they support. And that can just be continuously running in in production and that you know you get you you see you'll see kind of early signals if any of that's broken it will tell you that that something's broken yeah i've seen like some cases where uh people just replicate some of the incoming traffic and like forward it to this like testing environment and try mm -hmm. to see like in terms of reliability or performance is pretty much the same like that's how they actually do some of the performance tests uh they need to simulate like something that looks like real usage, right? Like they either go with um, incoming traffic or uh, what they would do is like uh, take a look at the, you know, events or logs and try to like replicate some time frame, like a five minute, and then they would run their tests. Yeah, I built a thing once where we recorded real kind of HTTP traffic and saved them and that became the test, that became yeah. the test files. Mm -hmm. there's i've seen it as well in go in go packages where there's like i think they call them golden files mm -hmm. yeah um, right yes yeah, so you you run the tests with a flag and then it actually hits the real service and saves the result in a test file so then in subsequent runs or if you run it with the short flag you can uh you know you can just say assume that everything's as it was when we last ran these and got the real data mm -hmm. so that's quite a nice thing to sort of admits that we're doing our best here. It's not perfect, um, but it still gives us a level of confidence that's therefore worth having. True. So for those who are obviously new to Go and, and trying to figure out how do I do these types of testing in Go, uh, what, what sort of advice uh, in terms of technique could we recommend for, for these folks? In other words, well, let me, let me actually give an example. So for integration testing, right? So if you don't necessarily want these things to be happening um, every time you're trying to perform your unit tests, right? Maybe the integration tests are, are more expensive and more in terms of time. Um, maybe, you know, you, you might name, for example, um, some of your tests with the word integration in them. And then uh, when you're running Go tests, you know, on a command line, the tool chain allows you to basically pass in flags, right? Maybe, maybe you, pack, you pass in a name flag, for example, um, and basically say, I want the name um, to be, uh, um, or rather run, uh, that's the flag I'm thinking of, to have the name 
name, right, integration in it. And that way you can actually run specific kinds of tests, right, depending on, on what you need at, at any given time. That way you don't have to run everything every time you're trying to do unit testing. That's one example. Yeah, I have a question. Are you uh, writing your integration tests as like unit tests by using Go tests? Or um, would you rather have like, you know, separate main like binaries or whatever <laughs> and just setting up the entire environment and then like running the tests? I'd say it totally depends on the size of the project. It, given given a large enough project, we might have something separate, completely separate for actually uh, exercising it as opposed to saying, well, you know what, this is just a small, you know, little microservice and, and it does only, you know, just a couple things and we just want to be able to make sure that it can actually talk to some other service or do some other function. But yeah, there's you could actually um, do, do it a, a couple of different ways. Yeah. I think part of it's also thinking about the project you're working on, like you just said. Because like, like Matt had talked about, if you're writing an API client and you're trying to test that it actually does things correctly with the endpoints, like one easy way to say we probably want to do integration tests is if they provide an API key, well, there's a good chance they're trying to hit the actual API. But if they don't, you can probably make the assumption in your tests that that's not what they're trying to do. So like you had said, you could pass the run flag. It might also be a flag that says like provide an API key or there's also build tags, which I like, but it's a little bit different. What mm -hmm. I like to use, use to environmental, you know, environments, uh, I take a look at the environment and skip things. And I usually like have some utility function. Uh, I have a testing package with a utility function that automatically skips if the, you know, the variable is not set or something. Uh, so mm -hmm. it's really like, you know, a common approach I am trying to like follow in every uh, testing, uh, in every test. Uh, I would basically take a look at the environment. If there's like enough credentials or whatever, I would just run the integration tests. Or if there's a like a you know specific environmental variable that says that like run integration tests, I would do that. Otherwise, uh, that function would just skip, and I would make that uh, function call in the beginning of uh, all of my test functions, so I don't have to like you know think about this problem again and again. Yeah, and the goal the goal yeah. of course is that we we want to run the unit tests very often you want to keep continuously running them and i even have it where i hit save and it will run the tests for that package uh, but that, of course you want that to then be quick you need that immediate feedback and with go you do get that especially for unit tests of course integration tests they're usually slower and i think that's the value in having them yeah. run them less often um, it's just because you, you you don't want to get in everyone's way and you, you want to encourage running of the tests because, you know, if you leave the code, it sort of goes stale. This is one thing that surprised me when I first became a software engineer. I thought if you left code alone, nothing would change. But it's not. <laughs> if you leave it alone and don't look at it and you try and run it again, it's just <laughs> everything's broken. So... Yeah, I, we want to definitely encourage. There's that. not like self-contained code, right? Like there is all these dependencies, and dependencies change even if you don't change the code. There's no such thing that you know code that doesn't change, unless you are writing your operating system and everything from scratch. You have like the absolute control on the hardware and never changes. Then yeah, we can say that like it doesn't have to change. Yeah, but then of course we also have flaky tests. And I always thought of testing as a scientific thing. It's almost the scientific model. We set up an environment, we make some estimations, or we make some assertions later, you know, we perform the same thing, we take the same steps, and then we, we test it. And it feels very scientific. But actually, in practice, tests can just sometimes, they'll just be flaky, and they just will fail sometimes and things. And, and if you get the level wrong, I think, as well, for a project, 
And that's what that means is is quite a deep thing, I think. But if you get the level wrong... When the- you say scientific, you mean um, it's consistently reproducible? Because like I, I see that it's a science to have like, you know, it's like a different science to handle the flaky tests, right? Like people are running all this like statistical stuff just to make sure like what is actually a flaky unit case and what is really important to care about and so on. So it's like a huge topic on its own. Yeah. Uh, no, it is. It's tough. I, don't, I really just mean that I'm, I can't believe sometimes tests will work and then sometimes they just don't work. So for junior developers or for people new to programming and Go and you start to experience that, yeah, it's weird, but it, it's real. It happens. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Strong DM. Strong DM makes it easy for DevOps to enforce the controls InfoSec teams require, manage access to any database, server, and any environment. And in this segment, we're talking to Jim Mordko, VP of Engineering at Hearst. He's sharing how they're using Strong DM within their team of 90 plus engineers. It now takes them just 60 seconds to offboard a team member from a data source. We have an engineering team of somewhere in the area of 80 or 90 engineers. Because we've got so many services and many databases um, and so many developers, we need a reasonable way to manage access to them. Uh, it was it was a somewhat painful and you know labor-intensive process. Uh, our DevOps team uh, would literally have to manage every one of the permissions for everybody who wanted access. Um, so Strong DM has been a real godsend in that area for us. Requests for access to specific databases were pretty much manual. Now we've adopted Strong DM. It's something that you don't even know is there. Once it's installed, it just works. It's very simple. Um, we've set up a multitude of data sources so that when somebody's onboarded, we just give them access to Strong DM. It's pretty simple. Um, our DevOps team, um, they have a very minimal effort required to enable each data source to be connected to Strong DM, and then installing the client software is uh, it's very, very very simple and straightforward. You can use whatever client you want to to talk to the database. So there's really no training necessary. All right, if your team can benefit from nearly instant onboarding and offboarding that's fully SOC 2 compliant, head to strongdm.com to learn more and request a free demo. Again, strongdm.com. I worked at a company at one point that like literally the end of every month, there was like a 24 to 48 hour period where like some of the tests just failed. And it was because somebody did something weird with time wrong. And I don't remember what it was, but it was like the most frustrating thing because everybody basically just ignored tests during those two days and just checked code in. And it was just like, what are we doing? And then like after those two days, it was just like, uh, uh, let's try to fix everything and not release anything. Oh, yeah, that's like the most dangerous part of it. Like once everything is becoming, if there's at least one flaky test, people learn how not to look at the test results and like they just entirely ignore testing, right? Like that's why it's really important to, you know, do something about flaky tests. Yeah, that's a great point, actually. That's exactly what happens. If if something's just annoying, you as a developer, you've got, you've actually got work to do. You haven't got time to fix someone else's test where you don't have any context about it. So, yeah, it's very common that what will happen is you just stop testing. You just stop writing tests. It's too messy. It doesn't work. Just comment them out or something. You know, that's what happens in in real life. That's definitely the number one reason I've seen for companies to stop testing as much as they should. It's because tests aren't working, so people aren't listening to them. So that leads to people just no longer writing more tests because what's the point? 
What do you do when uh, there's a really flaky test and it's not really easy to actually fix it? But I know that like it's going to actually damage the testing culture if we keep it in the test suite. Um, do you would you remove that momentarily until you figure out, or would you keep it and you know try to tell everybody to be careful because you know just because one test is flaky and is failing very often doesn't mean that we shouldn't care about testing. So one thing I've been experimenting with, which I still don't know how I feel about it, and a lot of my development is done in smaller teams, but. Uh, if I see tests like that, I tend to use build tags for my tests. So like I'll have a build tag for integration testing and stuff. I'll actually throw things in like a flaky build tag and just mm -hmm. basically say, these are all the tests that are known to be flaky. So then people know, like, if you aren't running that tag, you shouldn't be ignoring tests. But if you're running that tag, then there's a chance it could be because it's flaky. So like at least then it's isolated so people know, you know, when to ignore stuff. Yeah, it's a great approach. But hold on, what are some reasons why tests can be flaky? Uh, just imagine that there's a concurrency thing and like you don't have the API to like manage the concurrency and then, you know, it's not, there's no determinism um, and you can't really like, you know, simulate one particular case or whatever. Uh, it could be for multiple reasons and you don't maybe necessarily know what you can do about it right now. But, you know, you may want to work on it and maybe it will take a week or something to actually come up with a decent test that is going to replace that flaky test. So you may want to momentarily at least like, you know, just label it as a flaky one uh, and still keep it around. Jana, would you ever change the design in order to make testing easier? Uh, in, in terms of like, in terms of what? <laughs> Well, for example, yeah, if something's non-deterministic, but you could change the design in some way or uh, redesign the whatever it is, the component. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you would you would totally redesign, but imagine that like you don't have like access to change the. For example, let's talk about concurrency. There is this like concurrent whatever playback scheduler that you want to test, and it doesn't provide you the right API, so you cannot like create that like momentarily you know you cannot like intercept you cannot like change the behavior of the scheduler you cannot like really stop the scheduler to check if everything is fine along the way so like you know you have very limited options there uh, you would either not test that case or you would just ask them to give you some hooks so you can actually make the you know the, the schedulers testable but you know what would you do if you are actually limited to test a case and there is no deterministic way to test a component. It has happened to me before, and it's a pain. One of the things we did, and I really don't advocate for this, but it worked. This is a part of the disclaimer here is that developers will just hack anything to make it work. I, I, I ran it in a for loop because it mostly did. It mostly was fine. So I let it run like four or five times. And if it failed every time, then it was a mm -hmm. fail. If it passed any one of those times, I knew that it was okay. But that, wow. that doesn't feel great. <laughs> I didn't go home thinking, yeah, I'm really good at computers today. <laughs> Put that on your resume. <laughs> yeah. By any means necessary, <laughs> this test will pass. <laughs> yeah. But that's the attitude, though. That we have to remember that 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 is what people are doing. They've got some. They've got some other thing that they're trying to achieve. So they'll do anything. It's very natural, um, and we should, as individuals, fight it. But you know, anyone that's building tools or designing frameworks to help in this, they should 
for sure bear that in mind. I think we just do a terrible job in terms of like thinking about the testability of, you know, anything we design, like our API design, we had this, you know, we had this uh, show about the API design, but we never talked about testability. Um, But, you know, necessarily we optimize a lot of things around usability. But when it comes to, you know, testability, we are just always, uh, it's always the second priority. And we, you know, end up like having either flake tests or like non-testable code or like over-mocked, you know, situations, which is not really nice. Yeah. Yana, are you talking about sort of a, um, for example, like a, a practical example might be that you say you write a, a Go package um, and uh, you want to, you expose sort of a, a some sort of testing facility right for mm-hmm. the consumers of your package so mm-hmm. we're not talking about the internal the test you write for your own functionality but really exposing something that others who exactly. are in your package can use to test exactly or like designing apis in a way that it can be mockable or testable you know some certain way like just keeping in mind that i think uh something needs to be testable uh, by the user is just a good exercise but we don't necessarily care too much about it when we are designing APIs. Yeah, so we, right. that's funny because when we did Machine Box, that was a conversation we had a lot, which is we made sure that uh, people would be able to test this stuff because, and stub it out easily or whatever they wanted to do. And I think it should be a first-class concern. But of course, if you're generating code or, you know, if there are other mechanisms and every project is different, it's that is a difficult thing to keep thinking about but tdd helps me do that because i usually put my code at least by default in a in a different test package so that i am testing it ex- i'm testing the package externally so in order to test it it has to be testable so by its nature tdd helps me achieve that and sometimes i'll notice patterns that we're doing a few times and i'll put them in the docs for people or even create a little sub package um, or a little package inside this one that provides some kind of common or simple testing thing and just gives it to people. I quite like that. Mm-hmm. So in doing that, did you notice anything that was anything that you could design that like make your packages less testable? Like did anything stick out? Yes. I mean, any kind of global state, you know, suddenly you have to care about, you can't just run your tests in any order. I like to be able to run unit tests in any order that I like and I like to be able to just run one at a time if I'm just working on one little thing Mm -hmm. and sometimes if you have well every time that you have state somewhere you have to care about that and you know sometimes it's nice you get these little DSLs coming through where you can just say okay log in as this user and create these things and then do this and then you make the real kind of function call or the API call or whatever it is and then you can kind of go and check and make sure things happened as expected. But that's a lot of work to do for a unit. So as long as it runs fast, though, I will do that. What else is difficult? Concurrency is hard to test in Go. But you can, you know, it depends. Like, sometimes you, I think sometimes you have to kind of trust yourself as well. You, you know, we want these projects to be, to have this great coverage and f- for us to have the confidence that we can put it out there in the wild or ship the code knowing it's going to work. But if you've got like a little select block that's really difficult to test, what's the harm in leaving that bit untested and just sort of rely on the fact that almost nothing's going to work if that thing's not working? So we sort of know it is working. Does that give you warm fuzzies at night or does that worry you? I'm more willing to let things like that go, but I also 
am in a very different environment than most people. As in, like, I'm not working at, like, a Google on something that deals with billions of dollars. If I was doing that, it might make me a little bit scared at night. And what, you know, context that you have, where you're working, what the project is, all that stuff probably does play into this, doesn't it? I'd say definitely. Because, I mean, if you think about it, if you're writing something that, you know, maybe it's a little store that you're going to make $100 a month on. Well, if you have a little bug, at most, what, you lose $100 that month or something. Whereas like if you're a Google and you know you could actually lose millions of dollars because you didn't test something. So there's a risk assessment element there. Yeah. You have to assess the risk when you're testing because it is effort. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I hear people don't like TDD is because it just takes too long to build anything. That for me isn't true now. I'm actually faster with TDD because of the focus it gives me and, and the speed at which I can um, write code because... You know, if it's wrong, I'll I'll quickly see that it's wrong. It actually allows me to go a lot faster. But isn't isn't TDD TDD? So I have a question about TDD. I do think TDD is a good choice if you have a really you know clear spec, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's more of like um, you have this encoding decoding spec you want to implement, and it's just like there are clear cases and. Uh, it's, it's, I think, awesome, but maybe it's not that awesome if you're writing a web server that talks to like five other servers and it's just like not where I would start with. Uh, so what is your opinion on this? Like, do you think that like TDD is applicable to lots of different problems or is this just like really where the spec is really clear and self-contained? I think the other thing is it depends on what your definition of TDD even is. Because mm-hmm. I've heard some people that say TDD is literally writing the minimum amount of code possible. Like you write a test and you write the minimum code to make that test pass. And I don't function that way. It's just not how I work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can. I think it, that's like extreme TDD. That's like fundamentalist TDD, I think. But Is that, is that a <laughs> terminology you just coined? Extreme TDD? <laughs> X-TDD? Yeah, but... It, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. So here's here's the thing. I mean, this TDD debate has been going on forever. Like, I with my teams, I usually tell them, look, I, I don't particularly care if you follow TDD or not when coming up with the solution. As long as the stuff you're you're committing and and are and are issuing a PR for, as long as it has tests, I'm good with it, right? So to Yana's point, when I'm experimenting, right, when I don't quite know exactly what it is that what what shape this thing is gonna take, right? Like I don't start with tests first. And again, that doesn't mean it's the right way, it's the wrong way. It's just, you know, how a person, right? How how a developer, you know, that particular developer, how they think about things. We don't all think the same way. So we shouldn't take the TDD thing as, as gospel, right? We don't have to be dogmatic about it. It's all about at the end of the day, right? Is this code that is about that you that a developer is proposing to be the solution to the problem? Can we verify that, right? And when, to me, that underlines the value of tests, right? You are telling me that as a developer, the solution you are proposing is correct. And this is the test that says so. That is, to me, the, the ultimate value of the test, right? So that when somebody else picks it up and they start to make changes, they know exactly what is expected. And if it breaks, they know what it is they need to look at to fix it. So that's the ultimate value of the test. I don't care how you come up with it as long as you have them. I think that's fair enough. The The, the one thing I'll say about that, though, is writing unit tests for code that's already been written is one of the most soul-destroying things I find myself having to do sometimes <laughs> writing tests as it's being developed that is a very different experience the end result can be the same it's usually you know it's usually better with tdd because uh depends on if you're doing it well or not i suppose 
But yeah, you're right. You can't go too far and be an extremist about it. But there are cases where it really is the right way, I think, to build a particular thing. Of course, if people, you know, when you're sketching ideas, you just want to open a notepad and you're just sketching things and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that doesn't really count to me. That's It's part of the process, but it's it's not part of that. You're not writing, you're not implementing that production thing. It really is a different mode. So yeah, but even then, even in those cases when I'm just hacking on something, if it's a Go package, I will definitely start with tests personally because that's how I think about, I mean, that's that's really, I become the first user of that package. And I think that's the right way to build, to write code and to build packages. Are you doing this before or after the API design? So um, I'm just wondering, like, what is the overhead of writing the tests first? Because I I feel myself, like, even if I will follow a TDD approach, I will try to finalize my API design first and then uh, just basically, you know, put my API in my main package and then create a test file and, you know, maybe put some tests and start to implement the, the functions. I probably don't do it exactly like that. But to be honest, I wouldn't split any hairs over it because I think Johnny's right. As long as the end result is kind of the same, I think it's okay. But yeah, I will, if I'm, if I've got an idea for a Go package, I'll start with tests where I'm just trying to use the thing, imagining it exists and I just start to use it. And that's how I kind of do API design, you know, most of the time. And I'll say, oh, okay, so now I'm calling this package. You know, I need to be able to, set this i need to be able to set an http client so how am i going to do that in the design and i sort of try and just be the user and i think even if people are sketching even if you're sketching code elsewhere it helps if you're trying to be the user i think that's the important thing because we're really that's who we're building it for i think i have a similar approach but it's really limited like it's not really all the test coverage i call this like example driven development i would just you know start with the go examples uh, so I can actually have a feeling of like what it is going to feel like for the user. And I would only, you know, write examples for like three main cases. And then, you know, it helps me to shape the APIs. Yeah, that's great. I, I follow something a very, actually, <laughs> it's interesting because obviously we all have slightly different approaches. I I do the same thing, but with readmes, right? Like I basically mm-hmm. say, okay, if I were to go into this project <laughs> and, and I started looking at the readme, Tell me about usage, right? Tell me like what to expect. What am I doing? You know, what am I doing? What am I starting with? What is the entry point to, into this package? What is the uh, typical uh, um, way that you'd use this thing? So it's like I'll start with the readme, literally, because I've done this many times, both for myself and for members of my team, whereby I may not necessarily be the one implementing the package, right? But I will come up with the readme, right? And I can hand that over, you know, to, to a different developer or a different, different teammate. And then they know exactly what my expectations are and then basically that becomes a basis right to actually talk about designs and trade-offs and uh, even before a single line of code has been has been written i found it to be like a tremendous way of actually wrapping your head around what it is that you're trying to build yeah and i suspect a lot of us do design differently as well because for me design emerges for sure through that process um i don't see i have done before as you described johnny where you sit down with it's kind of document driven development almost or something in fact we made a we made a little Mm -hmm. tool called silk which was a it was a markdown file and you just described your api with it and then you could run that markdown file against a real api so it was like halfway between documentation and uh and real test code 
that that idea of that came out of the fact that you know as you mentioned Jan those go examples are actually runnable so it is an example but you can yeah. run it and it'll fail if if the output doesn't match and things like that which is really cool i love that in go project testing was a first class concern uh, a first first class citizen mm-hmm. um you know that has really helped the language and the community i think Mm-hmm. So the so we're talking about TDD, but there's a there's a whole other discipline, right? BDD, which kind of sounds like what you were talking about just now, Matt. The the whole behavior driven development, which actually we actually have uh, popular packages within the Go community that sort of adopt that approach. Like, have any of you tried that and liked it or didn't like it? What what did you think of of, of these kinds of uh, this approach of of actually writing tests? I can say I have no problem with people using it or you know whatever. One of the things that I tend to dislike about BDD is that most of the packages for it expect you to like almost learn a new language. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like I already learned Go. I want to write Go code in my tests. That way people don't have to learn new stuff. And it's not as bad in Go, but like I remember in Rails or you're writing in Ruby, it really felt like you weren't writing Ruby anymore. It was like, I got to learn <laughs> this whole new thing to learn how to test. And it's like, I don't want to mm-hmm. learn something new. Mm-hmm. And you're doing the same thing, aren't you? You're still, I haven't done much of it. Isn't it just that it's a different way of kind of doing the same job, which is it's going to run some code and you're going to make assertions about it. It just doesn't it have just these fluent kind of uh, APIs so that you can say it should do this and this should equal this and you can kind of speak it out almost. Yeah, isn't it the difference is more of like the organization of the things and like how you actually like, you know, express like, I mean, how you class maybe it kind of helps you to also self-document what is related to what you know uh, but isn't that the only difference i was sold on the the notion that if you wrote behavior style behavior driven development style um sort of self-documenting right almost english you know sounding ways of describing functionality that folks outside of the development group would start to get into it (laughs) um you know things like that's that's some some of the print like cucumber for example from from back when i was involved in ruby and rails and doing more of that stuff uh you know like um there's the the language underneath i think it's called gherkin or something like that Uh, there was this promise right that that you know you'd have people other than engineers you know writing the the specs that they can can then then hand over to the development team and they could just you know write tests against those things i have actually never seen that come true ever i think like yeah because nobody actually cares but uh i think initially i mean originally it was really important to you know explain who is actually um you know why we are testing this case like i mean you need to answer some questions like right you know who is the person that is going to get benefit from this behavior uh what it is actually trying to solve and like why is it doing it like uh and you need to you know express this in regular english so people can just go and like see and explore uh it's kind of like you know having this like product design document as a test suite or something i think the other issue is that if you take somebody who doesn't really write code more than likely, a developer could misinterpret their tests and write something that passes all of those tests, but comes nowhere near doing what they actually wanted it to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it hasn't worked, has it? So <laughs> I, I don't think it's ever going to work because it's almost like other people have to learn right. like how to keep the coder happy. And at that point, it's like, well, you might as well just write it up in a doc mm. anyway. Yep. <laughs> Thank you.
This episode is brought to you by O'Reilly Velocity Conference in San Jose, California, June 10th through June 13th. To get ahead today, your organization needs to be cloud native and O'Reilly Velocity Conference covers everything from Kubernetes and site reliability engineering to observability and performance to give you a comprehensive understanding of applications and services and stay on top of the rapidly changing cloud landscape. They have amazing training, amazing speakers, and of course, an amazing community. Hear from industry leaders like Lena Hall, Julie Horvath, Liz Fong-Jones, Emily Freeman, and more. Learn new skills, approaches, and technologies and get expert insights and essential training on critical topics like chaos engineering, cloud native systems, emerging tech, serverless, production engineering, and of course, Kubernetes. Learn more and register at velocityconf.com slash CA. Again, it's in San Jose, California, June 10th through June 13th. Plus, our listeners get 20% off bronze, silver, and gold passes when you use the code GOTIME20. Again, velocityconf.com slash CA or check the show notes for details. Well, uh, listeners, remember, uh, you can join in the conversation on Slack. We're in the hashtag GoTimeFM channel. And you can also tweet Twitter at GoTimeFM. And actually, speaking of that, Corey Lenau in the uh, in the Slack channels just said, I've written tens of thousands of lines of test code and have yet to ever feel like I need another package to help me test. So how, dear panel, do you feel about standard library only versus user, user framework or use something, some of the tools? I'll say this. As far as, I think this is like everything we've talked about. Everybody's going to have different preferences. But the bigger thing to me is as long as a whole team or a whole project can all settle on one thing, I think that's important. Like having consistency across a code base or a project or whatever you're working on is far more important than the specific details that you choose. Yeah, I think it's also like the tooling is really important in terms of having some consistency. I would rather like there are some tools, like there are some tested frameworks that kind of like comes with their own flavors of tools. And I'm trying to like stay away from that because I want everybody to check out my code, especially if it's open source and run the tests without learning anything new, right? Like that's really important. I care about tests. I care about people running the test. That's why I want to make it as approachable as it is. And um, I'm just generally personally happy with the standard library test package but as soon as like any you know testing framework supports go test i think i'm open uh to try do you ever do you write little helpers uh like for equality checking or for not nil or not error do you do anything to help yourself uh you mean like testing utilities yeah yeah i i have, I have a testing package Oh, so you, yeah. you have your own testing package? Yeah, I have like some utilities uh, as, uh, you know, I was mentioning that like, for example, it automatically skips the integration uh, test if, you know, if it's not in the environment or whatever. So I, I try to maintain a testing package for every project I actually maintain. But uh, it's more of like, you know, per project and depends on, you know, I put the utilities depends on the requirements. I personally have used um, the testify assert um, package because uh, it provided sort of that core basic utility um, sort of aspect that I was basically um, having myself 
um, finding myself sort of recreating from project to project. Um, it comes with some extras, and and I tend to not to use those. I think it has mocking as well and some other stuff. I, I, I think just being able to assert, use, using that assert package has been sort of, a, has made testing a little easier, a little more approachable. For some reason, though, and I might not be the only one who feels this way, but like when I first started Go, I almost like, I wanted to bring like some habits with me from from other languages, right? Like you know, if you're doing mm-hmm. Ruby, like you don't you mm-hmm. don't know no nobody that I know writes with a standard you know writes test without any sort of a um, framework you know in Ruby or Rails, right? You're always bringing like R spec and you're always bringing other things. There's there's this tendency to to sort of I had that tendency to just basically look around. Okay, what what things can I bring into this Go program to make it more you know akin to what I used to do? And I, over, over the years, I've sort of uh, regressed on that right basically i'm like okay well by default can i try to do this in this in this with a standard library right what is the trade-off if i bring in you know i try not to bring dependencies that i can simply if i can copy and paste like a few lines of code i'll i'll do that rather than bring in the actual dependency itself or if it's maybe slightly a little harder you know more verbose with the standard library i may still choose to do that because like personally um if i don't have to bring in a dependency like I really, really, really try to avoid it. Maybe I've been bitten one, once, one too many times with you know third-party packages, but like I really try to do it all with a standard library, even if it's slightly a little uncomfortable and a little painful. I think this goes back to what Matt said earlier, where you, if you let code sit long enough, you used to think that it would work, and later when you go to run it and it doesn't, a lot of the times it's because some third-party package changed and your package manager wasn't, you know, there wasn't one at the time or something happened, and you're just like, I don't want to have this happen again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but your point, Johnny, about the other, um, the inertia that people have from other languages, that is exactly why packages like Testify, Testify, I think, still is one of the most imported packages in Go. Um, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. uh, uh, full disclosure, I, I started Testify because, with a friend of mine, because I was in, I was working in other languages where that was, that was how I thought about checking for equality you just throw them into something and it it, Mm -hmm. you know it it was its Mm -hmm. responsibility to check it for you and and print it out nicely and and all that stuff um do you think go would benefit from having some way of saying like assert at least for the common ones like assert or you know check that this error is not is nil or those kinds of things you can write it yourself if you really want to have that. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's a couple of lines. It's like so trivial, yes. Yeah, it, it, you know, you don't have a whole, you don't need a whole package to do that. Yeah, it's almost like at this point we're arguing whether or not this should be a third-party library or in the standard library, and because it, like it definitely exists in third-party libraries. So the only real change would be like if you're willing to import something. Yeah, that's what I mean. Though, is mm-hmm. it is it worth having? Yeah. Is it worth getting promoted because i feel like testify made the case for that style of testing and to be honest i think the if you if you look at the api for testify it's really grown um it was a very uh, liberal project where anyone's kind of contributions were very welcome and um and so what's happened is it's quite now it's a big package it has its own dependencies quite a lot of them yes and really like you say people are just after the assert equal and a few other a little handful of very common things could that not be on the t so you could do like t dot assert or is it just not worth it i think it would be better for like testify to split itself across a couple packages or something or it Mm -hmm. may maybe have one package that imports all of it Mm -hmm. at least to me 
it's a great stepping stone. Like if you're learning Go and you want something that makes you feel more familiar, like I love having things like that. But there's enough people that I think would get upset about it that I don't, I just think it would cause way too much of a ruckus to, to bother with. I think there are also like uh, going to be a number of different APIs in order to, you know, support all the like fail cases like assert, uh, for example, um, assert if not nil, but, you know, put out this error message or, uh, you know, just log fatal or like, should I log, log fatal or should I like just log printf, right? Like there's like all these like different things that you may end up adding to the standard library picture. I think it's just like such a, it would require such a large API surface, if you ask my opinion, to add that type of utilities. I think within your own project, you can be more opinionated and say, hey, if there's an error, just like uh, log fatal uh, in this like, you know, error format. And like, this is the, you know, error message. But I think like, in order to add any type of these utilities to the standard uh, packages, you need to cover a bunch of you know, different cases. And I think it's, it's like, it's, I think it's not worth it to put it in the standard library. I also don't like the idea of having like too many ways to do the same thing with the standard library. Yeah. Yeah. Cause like, that's one of the things that drove me insane about working on rails projects is like everybody had their own definition of like how you were supposed to iterate over a, you know, an array and do something with yeah. it. <laughs> and I'm just like, I don't need to learn 17 ways to do this. <laughs> I think if something is not in Go as a uh, language feature or is not in the standard library, it's because like there are so many different ways to do it. So like they just cannot like put a opinionated API or a feature or they don't want to like, you know, they want to keep being an orthogonal language and they would just like stay away from adding more noise. I don't I think it's also pretty easy to make the decision of if you want to import something like if you're writing a really small package. That, you know, like you said, if you're just writing an encoder decoder or something, then yeah, it doesn't make sense to import other stuff. But if your package already imports 50 other things, adding one for testify is really not that big of a deal. Sure. What other things do we like when we are testing in Go specifically? Um, one of them that always stands out to me is uh, I love the way that we can just do table tests in Go, where you just have a slice of anonymous struct that contain any fields that you like. It depends on the case, which is perfect because it's another opportunity to tell a bit more of a story. And then you just immediately instantiate it with some test data, and then you just loop over that and run some target method or some target function, or you do some something with those inputs. And then the table tests also contain the outputs. So that as a little pattern, I think, is a great one. Are there any other... I never leave home without it. <laughs> <laughs> really, I mean, even for like single case, you know, tables, basically, um, I'll because the thing what I found over and over and over again, even when I, I start to think that, well, maybe there's really just one case here that I'm, I'm trying to test with this eventually, right, I'll either find an edge case or find some other input, you know, whether from the business or from from looking looking at, you know, in the course of actually coming up with a solution, I'll find out, oh, yeah, there is more than one case. Here. So I end up creating a, a table driven test anyway so right now i just uh, right off the bat i just start out with it and just put the case i know of right now and then over time it's easy to simply you know add a new one just you know copy and paste onto the next line or comment out you know one line at a time to test you know in isolation i mean i really don't have any tests without it 
I really like that it actually encourages people to add more cases. So that's what I realized that if I actually start with a table-driven test, uh, people will add more, you know, cases over time, uh, because you know it's like less boiler for them to like you know create a new test function and so on. So mm-hmm. it really also encourages you know people to add more tests. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also great for people that are new to programming in Go. If you're looking for an open source project and you want to contribute. You can go and have a look at um, look in the test code because there might be yeah. you know you might know something about that world that the original package writers didn't know. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It makes it easy. Yeah, one more thing I like about table driven tests in Go. Uh, some of the editors actually can generate the you know the tests in a table driven way, so you just um, automatically get the mm-hmm. boilerplate and you don't really have to like you don't have to even pick like I mean you can just auto generate the table driven style test. And um, even if you have like one case, you can keep it as that way. And then like more people will come in and fill in. Have you ever found certain situations where it feels easier to not, not, not necessarily to not get to a table driven test, but to instead start with something more straightforward and then come back and see how can I make this a table driven test? No. <laughs> I think I have one problem with ta- I have one problem with table driven tests. It's so hard to say. Like, just only run it for this particular input, right? Like, it, it needs to be run for every uh, everything, the entire yeah. table. So, you, yeah, comment. Your only options are either comment yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Or you could right. do, you could overwrite the struct underneath it, I guess. Yeah, but these are usually table. Uh, these are usually unit tests, so they usually actually are really like fast, right? But sometimes I just want to run it for like one particular thing because the output is so verbose or something because I'm printing out some other additional things and like it's so hard to read the logs or something. And that's the only case I have, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, I know that there was. I've seen a couple of different things, and I've even talked about it myself in the past. Of like one approach I've seen people take to avoiding that is to instead of using a slice, yeah. is to use a map, and that way they can actually yeah. name each test case. And one of the things I don't like it all the time, but one of the things I do like about it is that it makes you think about what's the purpose of this particular test case versus let me just throw a thousand random ones in there. Yeah, that's what I do uh, in order to actually make the logs better. So you can actually like, you know, log the name of the test, which is usually self-descriptive. And it kind of helps you when you're, you know, reading the logs. You can do that when in your table driven tests. I mean, you're one of the properties of your struct. I mean, I usually call that scenario. The first thing is I call it scenario, um, meaning that this is the scenario that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to test. And when I call my t.run, right, when I'm doing subtests, the first parameter is the name of the scenario. So the output ends up telling me exactly this is the test you were mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. and this is what failed. Sure. It's pretty straightforward. Yeah. Okay. So you do it. Basically, it's the same idea, except instead of a map where like the key is the name of the test, you just have the first field of the, mm-hmm. you know, of the Exactly. Okay. Yeah. I think I've generally just not preferred that because then when you're iterating, like you're writing your for loop with a range, it's clear like which is the test case and which is like the test case data and which is the name of the mm-hmm. test, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's true. like a very true. minor nitpick. <laughs> yeah. Chris James just said that as well on, on Slack. He said, uh, if you use t.run, of course, that subtest, you can then be specific using the run flag. Mm-hmm. You made the same mm-hmm. point. By the way, table driven tests were mm-hmm. really hard before the subtests, right? Before t.run, it was really they hard. Were. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Not as no excuse. I can't think of it, but you guys were talking about how you always start with tables. And I remember there were a couple things that I wrote at one point that like coming up with the test without, like basically it was hard to come up with the table driven version at first. 
but I just can't think of the exact cases. I think it was something to do with errors where like sometimes I didn't want to, I wanted to ignore errors and other times I wanted to do something else, but I don't remember what it was. Oh yeah, I totally can see that. And I think if my assertion is not going to be the same for every input, I tried to separate the tests. I think what it was, was I had tests where like I was actually testing against a real API and I wanted to verify certain error mess. Like the errors had like more yeah. to them that I wanted to assert. So I had to like do a little bit more with it. Yeah. I mean, what I ended up doing was having like check functions. But like when I first wrote the test with tables, I didn't really mm -hmm. want to think about check functions. I just wanted to think about, let me write a test and then I'll come back. Yeah. Does anybody else remember? Oh, sorry, Johnny, I'm going to change the subject. So if this is on subject, go for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please go ahead. Please go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, does anyone remember before error was an interface in Go? It used to be like a pointer. It was like a type os.error. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It just occurred to me then because I remember fighting with errors at one point and I got it was OS error. And of course, then, of course, it changed, I think, obviously, before V1. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. I haven't gone crazy. Another thing I like to do. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry. Just one more thing. Something I quite like to do is if I have a setup function that's going to do some work, I like to return a teardown function from that setup call. So usually I'll call setup, pass in the T. Mm. And to all the helpers, I pass in the T so that if something goes wrong, they can fail it. I don't need to return any errors. But yeah, then the setup might return something, but it, it might also return like context.withcancel. You get like a cleanup function, which you can just immediately defer to do the teardown. Yeah, that's what I like. I like the mm. defer, the cleanup. I will say the only, the only thing I dislike about that is when people just put the double parentheses. And it's like, if they do it, it's fine. It's just, I feel like it's really easy to miss those. True, like evaluation versus, yeah, yeah, I don't want to. Like if you defer setup and then another set of parentheses afterwards, people are like, what are they setting up after this? Yeah, I, I don't like that. Yeah, that's where we've just got obsessed with fewer lines of code and we've condensed, over condensed <laughs> it. No, seriously, that, I, I, that absolutely agree. That, it hurts readability so much. It mm -hmm. just looks weird and magic, which usually I like. Mm -hmm. Do you reach for that, like, uh, or do you use that in conjunction to the setup and teardown facilities you get with test main? Or like, do you pick one over the other? Or like, how do you how do you do that? Just for a particular set of tests, whether if it's a table test, and I want to do common setup and teardown. Um, I'll, I'll use it for something mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Uh, okay. I see. So when, when you have specific sets of tests, you're trying to do that way, but not for everything. Yeah, it won't always be appropriate. But for example, if I'm testing a web server, and basically, I always am, then I'll create that server in a test helper and return it. And then the, the teardown function is just the close of that server so that it cleans up nicely after each run. See, nice. I wish that there was a way to like, globally for a package to set up a setup function and a teardown function. Sometimes feel really variables and I sometimes like, you know, forget to call the setup and or forget to call the teardown mm -hmm. and the test is misbehaving or it's always been misbehaving and nobody realized that it was not like cleaning up some of the resources, whatever. I wish that, you know, it was easier uh, in the testing package to like just set up something that is global, just always run this, right? Uh, in the beginning and always run this in order to clean up. I kind of have mixed feelings because I feel like that would get abused with global state too much. Yeah, true. Global state's the devil. Yeah, anything that might be abused is going to be abused. So I agree. Yes. <laughs> Anything that can be abused will be abused. <laughs> well, I think we've come to the end of our conversation for today. Um, thank you so much to my panel, uh, Johnny Borsico, 
Jana B. Dugan and John Calhoun. John, that's how you say your name, isn't it? John. That's close enough. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to the lag in the on the internet, I was able to get you there, John. <laughs> so yeah, we talked a lot. I think one of the key takeaways for me is that doing it right, it's all about the context in which you're doing it. It's about what is it you want to get from writing test code? What do you want to get out of it? If you're writing something simple and small and throwaway, maybe you can skip tests altogether. If you're writing some big, complicated system, the testing needs are going to be very different to smaller apps or little projects of your own or websites or even medium-sized projects. So there are no silver bullets, probably, when it comes to testing, just some good philosophies, probably. And I think if you care about your test code and look after it, don't just keep adding to it ad nauseum. Look after it, keep it well-groomed, take good care of it, and I think you'll be all right. You'll be just all right. And yeah, that's it. I think that's a wrap for today. Thanks for being here and listening and hope to see you next week. All right, go time is back. It's been so much work behind the scenes, but it's definitely paying off now. And it's so much fun producing this show. We have so many people listening live. Thank you so much for that. We love you. And if you're not yet, hang with us in Go for Slack. We have a channel called Go Time FM. Look it up. You'll find us. Chat with the community, share stories, share coffee recipes, whatever. It's a lot of fun. Also, we have discussions on every single episode at changelaw.com. So head to changelaw.com slash go time, find this episode and discuss it with the community. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, DigitalOcean, StrongDM and Rollbar. Huge thanks to Fastly for being our bandwidth partner. Head to fastly.com to learn more. And we move fast and fix things right here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at rollbar.com slash changelog. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers at linode.com slash changelog. Our music is by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more episodes like this, subscribe to our master feed at changelog.com slash master or go to your podcast app and search for ChangeLog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe. Get all of our shows in one single feed as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Because you've listened all the way to the end of the show, got a little preview here for you of our upcoming podcast called Brain Science. This podcast is for the curious. It explores the inner workings of the human brain to understand behavior change, habit formation, mental health, and the human condition. This show is hosted by myself, Adam Stachowiak, and my good friend, Muriel Reese, a doctor in clinical psychology. It's brain science applied. Not just how does the brain work, but how do we apply what we know about the brain to better our lives? Here we go. That applied brain science really stood out to me because I want I don't want it to just be data. I, I want you to go, how can this fit? What can I take away? Now how am I going to change? And that that sort of is where you come in more and even some of the questions like, so like I want to ask you, what are some of the most challenging things working in the tech world when it comes to relationships? Probably the most important one is isolation. It's more and more the world 
and companies are being, for good reasons, they're being okay with what they call distributed teams. Yeah. And that means that you and I, we work for the same company, but you work from your home office. I work from my home office. I might go into the office a couple times a week if I live local. But even if I live in San Francisco, I'm still probably a remote worker, even though I can hop in an Uber or hop on, you know, the train or whatever and go into the office and be there in a half hour. But why waste the time? You know, and this is where I would revisit what I what I want to talk about with resonance and that whenever we're we're learning, no matter what thing, it's really helpful when we get feedback that's both immediate and specific. And so when you're by yourself and you don't have any interaction with other people, how can you get any feedback? I mean, you're losing most of the nonverbal communication and you also don't have um, all of the voice inflections or facial expression. Have you ever tried to, you know, be sad, feel sad and smile at the same time? Try it. it's, (laughs) It's pretty hard. Right, because facial expression is exactly what's involved when it comes to empathy, which is relationships. Uh, I was reading a research article recently, and it talked about you know how um, couples who are together a really long time end up sort of looking like each other. Uh-uh. Never heard that. <laughs> yeah, and so um, what they've looked at is when we actually empathize with other people, facial expression is really key within that. And so when you empathize with the partner you're with over and over and over again, your face begins to make the same creases and facial expression as it relates to where somebody else is emotionally. Wow. Right? Say it so, is. so that's that's creepy. <laughs> well, they've again, this is sort of the hotbed when it comes to um neuroscience these days is mirror neurons and these mirror neurons are what are involved with empathy and so mirroring meaning i i get another person's emotional world and so one of the research um, studies looked at botox and what they found is that botox because it it actually um, assists in paralyzing facial muscles right but then then you can't contort your face so you don't get wrinkles but actually levels of empathy go down. Uh-uh. <laughs> right. Because your physical appearance can't reflect your inner appearance. You're, yeah, you got it. And so when you're working in these remote locations, it, it might facilitate better work or more focus, and it allows people to be distributed and to capitalize on the talents across the country, right? Yeah. Wow. So that, see, that's like a treasure trove, in my opinion. Talking about in a scientific way, you know, not just like, hey, this is my opinion uh, about all the cons of that, because I think what we can do is still have remote work, but do it in more healthy ways. Because I'm I'm fully I mean, I've been self-employed remote worker since 2006. Now I'm a unique animal. I know I know I know that my wife knows that. Right. I'm fine with it. I'm a good human being, but I've got some flaws and I'm willing to accept and share those to some degree. And I think the problem is we just we just lack more maybe a more purposeful or intentional feedback loop. Yeah. Which I think is, is super important to being able to operate in this world in just good ways. I don't know, healthy ways is probably the, the best way to use in this show context is healthy ways. One of the things that's fundamental, I would say, to being human is change, right? And so sometimes people come in and are really key 
in our life for a period of time and then things change. Either we grow or they grow or they change in a different direction and then the relationship changes or that feedback loop gets modified in some way. That isn't always a bad thing. It's just going, my sense of choice actually is a critical component when it comes to feeling good about my life. If I feel like everything is sort of outside of me and I don't have any charge over it, like I didn't choose to work (laughs) in a more remote location or I didn't choose to go to school or I didn't choose this person, then it feels far more oppressive as opposed to I actually participated in the outcome that I'm actually experiencing. So I then also have more charge over whether or not I want to change it. I think this uh, feedback loop process that we're talking about here is is super common to to developers. You know, from people who write code to people who plan and to engineer and to uh, manage and lead. Like, there's no one in the software process that doesn't understand the, the feedback loop. And the reason the reason why is because in product development, they have this concept of agile. And basically, it means you produce something, you put it out there, and you expect the feedback loop to happen in order to gain insights and course correction to then release another version of it that that continually and iteratively becomes more and more improved. So this whole process in day-to-day work in software is normal. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting how it can apply to their lives and people's lives, you know, to take the same importance of a feedback loop, for example, and apply it. Right. Well, so this is very much how it goes in relationship, which is why there is an importance when it comes to sort of things resonating. You ever walk into a room or an interaction with a couple other people and like something just feels wonky or off? You're like, I can't put my finger on it. But Definitely been there. <laughs> right. Well, and so to be able to identify that in relationships and even go, wow, I need to, I'm experiencing this person in my world with the limited interactions that I have with them. It hasn't really resonated with me. And so I don't get good feedback. So now I'm going to be more defensive because I feel as though there's a threat. It doesn't necessarily mean the person is threatening. However, my brain is going to tell me, hey, we need to be more protective. We need to do some strategies so that you're not fully exposed. You know, one way I look at scenarios like this, uh, I would say as of late, is because have you ever watched a TV show or a movie where the you know the narration, the storytelling part of it, they expose a character in a certain light, and you may dislike that. They may be a villain or villainess, right? Sure. But the moment they turn the story to their backstory and why they are the way they are or why they're acting the way they're acting. Yeah. You then kind of fall in love with them and you're almost rooting for them. Right. I feel like that's the same thing that happens day to day to our lives is that, you know, there are people who seem villainous or not for us, but we don't understand their backstory and why they are the way they are for us to have and employ that empathy that's required to have this, this dance, as you say, this iteration of relationship. You know, we right. we just assume they are who they are and we project, you know, our worst fears onto them and they become right. true. Yes, you got it. This is why in the absence of, you know, a face, I, I don't really get to engage with people in the same sort of humanness that we are all in. And so you're exactly right. I, I mean, 
over and over and over again because you can identify and go, oh, that's why they're harsh. Or, you know, I recently had an interaction I had shared with someone that I I was a competitive gymnastics coach for a number of years. And so somebody thought that my response to them when they were really struggling was kind of harsh, but they remembered that I had told them I was a coach for so long. And they're like, oh, this is just another side of her coming out. Right. And I'm not sure I prefer it, but I get it. And then it switched for their reaction because then they're like, oh, wait, we're on the same team. <laughs> She's not trying to like, oppress me or fight back against me. She actually is helping me, trying to get me to where I want to go. My wife and I, we've learned this, this concept of goodwill, right? Yeah. I can take your feedback or your criticisms in a different light. If, if I know that you have goodwill for me, Yep. meaning that you're not trying to harm me, that you are for me, not against me. And sometimes change, as we all know, is painful and can be painful. So sometimes the necessary feedback and or criticism that can influence that change can also be painful, but I can accept it differently if I know right. that she or they or whomever is in the scenario with me has goodwill for me, you know, whereas yeah. if you know that they're not for you, then you obviously take it a whole different way. And that's, that's an okay thing. But we often are, you know, in relationship with people that are giving us crucial feedback and we need to have that kind of, that lens, like it was significant in our marriage to understand, hey, I know there are times when you give me feedback, I am not happy about it, but but I know you have goodwill for me. So therefore I calm down, I listen, I yeah. you know, I take that in and I process it, whatever, but I take it in a different way because I know that she's for me and not against me. Yep. One of the key things when it comes to change is a sense of openness and even relationally like of going i need to be able to see some how somebody else responds or how they're feeling as based on their perspective of what they're going through and not just my perspective of their perspective and so this goodwill is like i believe that we're on the same side and that you're not trying to make it harder for me. But so I can understand if I were sitting where you were sitting, had the background that you had, why you would have taken it in that way. And then I can provide an opportunity to clarify or create more connection, even when it doesn't feel good. And I, I honestly think this is so much of what's missing in people's relationships. If I look at relational interactions through uh, the notion of conditioning, wherein I get a sort of hit of dopamine, feel good feelings because I went to a person, I had a conversation that didn't necessarily feel good, but there was openness on both parties to hear one another's perspective that it actually then reinforces like, oh, when I go and I have this exchange with people, I feel better. So now I'm going to go and engage with other people and get the feedback even if I might not like the feedback, because now I'm buffered and I'm not alone in this and I somebody else sees my world. That's a preview of Brain Science. If you love where we're going with this, send us an email to get on the list to be notified the very moment this show gets released. Email us at editors at changelaw.com. In the subject line, put in all caps, 
brain science with a couple bangs if you're really excited. You can also subscribe to our master feed to get all of our shows in one single feed. Head to changelog.com master or search in your podcast app for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe, get all of our shows and even those that only hit the master feed. Again, changelog.com master.